Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the passage we're going to be diving into tonight. Now, I was sitting in a hotel room this past week uh, on one of my preaching trips and was working on the Bible study for tonight. And as I was just praying over the passage The first thing that I felt God wanted me to write down on my notes was, tonight we go from preaching to meddling. Now, some of you might not know what we're talking about here, but the old phrase where the people in the old country church said, oh, preacher, you went from preaching to meddling. Well, that's what we're going to see Jesus do tonight. You know, it reminded me of a story I heard years ago about this preacher who was in a country town, and he said to one of the farmers in his church, he said, if you had 100 pigs, would you give God 50 of those pigs if he asked? And he said, preacher, you know I love the Lord. I'd give him 50 pigs if the Lord asked. He said, if you had 25 pigs, would you give God, uh, sorry, if you, had, if you had 50 pigs, would you give God 25 of those pigs? And he, the farmer said, preacher, you know I love the Lord. I'd give him 25 if he asked. He said, if you had 10 pigs, would you give God five of those pigs? If he asked for five of those pigs, he said, you know my heart, pastor. I love the Lord. If he wanted five of my pigs, I'd give him five. The pastor said, if you had two pigs, would you give him one? He said, now hold on there, Pastor. You know I have two pigs. Tonight we're going to go a little bit deeper, as you're going to see. You see, in this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he continues to use the heart of the law to reveal the heart of man. You see, the Jews had become masters in their own minds as to how to keep the letter of the law But Jesus has been showing them that they were guilty of breaking the heart of the law and therefore guilty of breaking the letter as well. He does this in our section for tonight in a slightly different way than he's been doing in the previous passages. See, he's been showing them that they have been breaking God's law by by doing the bad things, by not keeping the heart of the thou shalt nots. You know, when it said thou shalt not murder, they thought they were doing pretty good because they hadn't killed anybody. And he was showing them actually you've not been keeping that because you've been angry at your brother and so on. But now he's going to reveal their disobedience in the good things, or the thou shalts, if you will. By the way, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to write it down and look at it later on, in James chapter 4, verse 17, the scripture says, the one who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So we can sin by commission, and we can sin by omission. And tonight, Jesus is going to talk about how we ought to be acting And he wants to speak to our hearts. So once again, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament law. You see there in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So what we're going to look tonight is let's go back 
to where in the law he's quoting from. You're actually going to see that it's in three places in the law that he quotes from. Go to Exodus chapter 21 to start with. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 26. In Exodus 21, verse 22, it says, When men strive together, it means when they get in a fight, and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So just to make sure you're up to speed with where we're at, the law said two guys get in a fight, and in that fight they bump into a pregnant woman, and in doing so she gives birth. If the baby comes out okay, everything's fine. The husband just sets a fine for what it would be, and the judge determines. But if the child dies, there needs to be a life for a life, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and so on. Go to Leviticus chapter 24. <clears throat> Excuse me, Leviticus 24, look at verses 17 through 22. In Leviticus chapter 24, verse 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So here again we see that eye for eye, tooth for tooth. One more place, it's gonna, you'll find it in Deuteronomy chapter 19. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 21, we see... It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days." The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and he is, uh, uh, in, has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, so shall you purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So now Jesus, and again, quoting from the Old Testament law, he's picking bits and pieces to illustrate this point that man's guilty of sin when they think they're okay. He now quotes from these sections, and he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, don't resist someone who's evil. If they want to slap you on the right cheek, turn and let them slap you again on the other cheek, and so on. And so at the heart of this eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth law is a desire to keep them from escalating retaliation. That's important because otherwise it's going to look like Jesus is changing the law. Because it looks like the law says if this happens, that has to happen in return. If this happens, then that has to happen in return. Equal measure in return. And Jesus says, no. If someone slaps you, you don't get to slap them back. If someone slaps you, 
you let them slap you again. Now, it appears that Jesus is saying, that's what the law said, but I say, and he's changing it. He's not changing it. Because he already said, as we saw earlier in our study in Matthew, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But at the heart of the law, and that's one thing that we miss a lot of times. I was working on some radio programs for coming up for my radio uh, program. And as I was looking at the, the, the Pharisees coming in and, and judging it, the fact that, that uh, the, the disciples were eating grain in the Sabbath, you know, in the grain field on the Sabbath. They were taking some grain and just doing this and eating it, blowing the chaff away and eating it. And the Pharisees were like, don't you realize what they're doing? They're breaking the Sabbath law. They're harvesting. They're threshing. <laughs> Because they took a piece of grain and then they did this and blew the chaff away. So they harvested and they threshed. So they worked on the Sabbath. And what did Jesus say? He goes, a couple of things. He said, hey, uh, don't you remember when David and his men were hungry and they ate the shoebread that wasn't lawful for them to eat? And then he makes this interesting statement. He said, man wasn't made to fulfill the laws of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. In other words, there's a heart to the law that you're missing. But I want you to see the heart of this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law was to keep them from retaliating with an escalating retaliation. Any of you ever had more than one kid? <laughs> one does one thing. The retaliation always is in, a re, is in escalation, is it not? That's one of the things my two daughters actually said last night after the Bible study. One came in and said, I told her she wasn't supposed to escalate. When I hit her, she wasn't supposed to hit me harder. And uh, then, of course, we say, well, why would you hit her in the first place? Well, that's not the issue. She wasn't supposed to hit me harder. The heart of the law was to keep them from going, look, you killed my cow. I'm going to take your daughter. You take my daughter. I'm going to kill your wife. To keep them from doing that, the heart of the law was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's as far as you're allowed to go. But as you saw in the other passage, remember the, one, the middle one we read in Leviticus? When someone accuses falsely, whatever they meant to do to them will be done to them. And that was to keep them from doing this. So that anybody else would fear, would keep them. So when Jesus comes and says, but I say, don't retaliate at all. He's showing the heart of the law. That's what he's try been trying to get across. By the way, this heart of the law in this issue of retaliation has been there in the Old Testament all along. Go with me back to Genesis chapter 50. <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 50, look at verses 15 through 21. I'm going to set the stage as you're going there. Joseph, as you know, was one of many, many brothers. And his brothers didn't really like him because his dad played favorites. And he was the favorite. And when his dad sent the favorite to go check on his brothers, they saw him coming and they decided, you know what, we're sick of this guy. And they decided they were going to kill him. But then they thought, we can make money if we sell him. And so they beat him up, threw him in a hole. They took his favorite coat that his dad had made for him and they covered it in animal's blood. And they sold him as a slave to these caravanners, these uh, Travelers, if you will, and he sold, sold them as a slave to him, and then they went back and told Dad that an animal must have killed him because we found his coat and it's covered with blood. Of course, as you know the story, if you don't know the story, as he's working there for these people, he ends up becoming in power, and then he ends up in the dungeon and all this stuff, and eventually ends up second in command of Egypt. That's how awesome God is. And because of a famine... His brothers and the family have to go to Egypt to get grain. And when they get there, he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. They go through the whole dance of him finally revealing. And he cares for them. 
and he welcomes the whole family to come up and live in Egypt for a season. And of course, dad then dies. And what we're about to read now is what their reaction of the brothers are now that dad has died. In chapter 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God and of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So here we see in the Old Testament, even prior to the law coming, the law didn't even show up for hundreds of years later. Here we see that actually the heart of the law was right there in Joseph's response. Could he have retaliated? Sure could have. He had plenty of power to do so. But he didn't retaliate. But he showed grace. By the way, I don't want you to miss what he says, though, in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Joseph said to them, don't fear. And then he said this, am I in the place of God? You see, what he was saying was is this. You're worried about me paying you back for what you've done. That's God's job. And if I paid you back for what you did to me, I'd be putting myself in the place of God. I'd be playing the role of God. By the way, whenever we sit and decide what we think ought to be done in retaliation to someone, we put ourselves in the place of God. Go with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21 is a passage of scripture that we could spend the rest of tonight on. It's a passage that deals with how the church ought to be treating each other. Listen closely to what it says in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Joseph understood the heart of the law that was going to be coming. He understood the heart of God. And he says, I don't want to repay you. I, I don't want to retaliate. I'm sure in my flesh, I probably would want to, but that, I would be putting myself in the place of God. God's job is to repay. 
Joseph's response to his brothers also reveals another deep truth about the value of trusting God and not retaliating when someone does us wrong. What did he say after that in verse 19? He said, am I in the place of God? You meant it for what? Evil. But God meant it for good. Don't miss this. When we, when we go through a trial in such a way in which someone does something to us and our natural reaction is to retaliate, not only are we putting ourselves in the place of God by determining what needs to be done in justice, secondly, we're also possibly and most likely getting in the way of what God is doing through the situation. You've heard me say this to you before, but let me remind you. If you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ and sealed by the Spirit of God, and on that day Jesus says, John 14, verse 20, you're going to realize that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father, and you're swimming in God. You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You have God in you and around you. I was actually teaching on this at a church in Clearwater this past weekend, and I, I, I demonstrated it to him this way. I said, this is how much God's in you and you're in God. Imagine your water baptism, but don't plug your nose and, and keep your mouth open that would be you in the water and the water in you right that's how that's what happens when we got saved so when you have God in you and you're in Jesus and Jesus is in the father can Satan do anything to you not without the father's permission correct so if something that sure looks like his handiwork to another individual has happened in your life. Satan didn't do it freely. He had to get permission from your father to allow this thing to happen. There's a strong chance that your, your father actually has something good in mind. Let me give you the greatest example of evil meant for good. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two, verses 18 through 24. Starting in verse 18, servants be subject, subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Oh, this is, this is a little deeper than we want to go. For to this you have been called. In other words, what he just said was, when you go through trouble because of the trouble you caused, it, it, it's, it's something you earned. It's no big deal if you survive it or endure it. But if you did good and you actually are beaten for it, if you will, it's a gracious thing in the eyes of God because you're mindful of him and you keep your eyes on him and you respond without retaliating. It's a gracious thing in the eye of God. And not only that, this is what you were called to. Why? Keep reading. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Did Satan mean it for evil? But God meant it for the greatest thing in the entire world. Oh, but 
some of his disciples didn't understand that and they didn't want it to happen. And when Jesus was being arrested, by the way, um, didn't Peter start swinging his sword? He wanted to retaliate. Oh, and by the way, Peter's retaliation was escalation. If you know the story, they come at night and they come to where they're in the garden with their clubs and their torches. And by the way, this will give you an idea of the fact that Jesus could have done something about it. He said, who have you come for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and the scriptures don't really make it clear. The Greek brings it out better than our English translations. All of our English translations say, Jesus says, I'm he. But the Greek doesn't have the word he. He didn't say, I am he. Jesus just said, I am. And when he said, I am, John chapter 18 says, all of them fell down backwards under the power of God. Now, interestingly enough, after that happening, they all get back up and continue with the arrest. And that's when Peter decides to retaliate and to escalate the retaliation. They might have clubs and, and torches, but Peter had a sword and Jesus scolds him. He says, look, don't you realize I could ask my father and he could send legions of angels? But how would scripture be fulfilled? This is actually what God had in mind. Let me give you another example Oh, when Stephen was being stoned, and we're going to read it in just a little bit, they laid their coats at the feet of an individual. Anybody want to know who that person was? Saul, who we know him as Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. What looked like a bad thing happening, oh, and as you're going to see in just a little bit, when we read that story, Stephen's response looked just like Jesus, almost word for word. And he didn't retaliate. He trusted himself to God. And through that process, seed was planted in the mind of this young man named Saul, who became Paul. Folks, when you retaliate, instead of just trusting yourself to God, when you decide, I'm going to pay them back, you're putting yourself in the place of God. And secondly, you're getting in the way of something bigger that God has in mind. Jesus, it says here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, 23, says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued what? Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we don't retaliate, when people do us wrong, we're doing a couple other things that we may not realize at the time. And here's one of them. We're actually entrusting ourselves to God who judges correctly. See, one of the reasons why it's dangerous for us to determine what we think needs to be done in retaliation is, um, biblically, do you really know why someone did what they did? According to the scriptures, the Bible says we're not to judge people's motives. You really don't know someone's heart. By the way, a lot of times I actually have hurt my wife, but it wasn't intentional. But she thought it was. But in my heart, I knew I didn't mean to hurt her. But it gets worse and worse when she thinks he did that on purpose. We can't judge people's motives. You don't know their hearts. It's a dangerous thing to do. Go to Luke 23, verse 46. By the way, we just said, read on the scriptures there that he was entrusting himself to the Father. Let me give you an example of it. Luke 23, look at verse 46. Luke 23, verse 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, 
he breathed his last. Even in his death, he handed himself over to the Father. Now, go with me to the passage that I talked to you about earlier. Go to Acts chapter 7. Let's take a look at that story of Stephen. And we'll see this picture. Oh, yes. It, it, that's a wonderful illustration and point. If we're, if we're going to be held under the law, we're missing the heart of the law. But if we're held under the law, Peter would have had to have ears ear cut off. But, of course, Jesus in his grace heals the man's ear, so now Peter doesn't have to have the retaliation by the people who are still under the law. Yeah, he knew Peter's motive was if you really do a study of this, you'll find out just a few verses earlier, Jesus had just said, sell your coat and get a sword. They said, we got two. He goes, that's enough. He wasn't really wanting everybody to have a sword, but he was illustrating to them that I've been with you. I've been taking care of you for three days. I'm going to be not here. The Holy Spirit won't be taking care of you. You're going to be on your own for three days. You're going to need to protect yourself and um, get a sword. And he just used that illustration. They said, we got two. He goes, that's enough. So when Peter swung his sword, Jesus had just said, get a sword. So in his mind, he thought he was doing the right thing. This must be what Jesus meant. By the way, we a lot of times do that, thinking we know this must be what God wants. He cleans up after us, and thank God he does. Go to Acts chapter 7, look at verses 54 through 60. It's the end of his sermon. He's just called them stiff-necked individuals. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he... Full of the Holy Spirit, that means totally under the control of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. That's almost word for word what Jesus was doing on the cross. Oh, but wait a minute. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us what Jesus was doing when he was on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. By the way, before I go any further, let me remind you about these cloud of witnesses. In the whole chapter 11, all these men and women of faith the Bible's talking about. And at the end of the chapter, it goes on and it says, Some escaped the edge of the sword. Some were put to death by the sword. Some received their children back from, from the dead. Others were sawn in two. So others were wandering in dens and caves. Folks, let me just tell you, when you walk by faith, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be wonderful in this life. But when you entrust yourself to God, the Bible says the world was not worthy of these people. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus was going through what he was going through, being done wrong by the world, by the people that he was dying for, when he was being done wrong, where was his focus the whole time? It was on the Father. 
when Stephen was going through the same thing, his eyes were on Jesus. Folks, when you have evil done to you, and by the way, if it hasn't, you haven't lived in this world. We have a tendency to look at that person or what we think needs to happen in retaliation. And the Bible says, let it go. Trust yourself to the Father. If you're his child, he's doing something. You may not see it for a while. You may not understand it right away. Because Saul didn't become Paul for many years. But God was doing something. And we need to entrust ourselves to him. And I've heard too many people say, well, I, I just think I'm going to do something so he doesn't do this to anybody else. Sounds righteous, doesn't it? But actually, again, you're putting yourself in the place of God. You're putting yourself in the place of God. There's another thing, though, that I want you to see. When you don't retaliate, when you've had evil done to you, you're opening yourself up to receive mercy from God. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 7? Blessed are the merciful for what? They shall receive mercy. I put in my notes here, if you're seeking retaliation for others and desiring them to get what they deserve, how can you ever expect to ask for mercy for yourself? Kind of hypocritical, isn't it? But if we're careful, if we're, if we're honest, we all want them to get what they deserve. But that's not the heart of the Father. And when we want them to get what they deserve, but we don't want to get what we deserve... We're hypocrites, but when we're willing to be merciful toward people that have done us wrong, that opens us up to receive the mercy of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they're the ones that are going to receive mercy. You remember me telling you this before, but in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's dealing with a church there in Corinth, and they're suing each other. Christians are suing Christians. And on top of that, they're going to the, 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 the secular courts in front of the world. What a wonderful witness that was, Paul said. And then he goes on and he says something even more amazing. He says, why not be wronged? Why do you have to win? Why not be wronged? Now, as I share this with you, there's going to be some of you who say, well, you're saying we should never get a lawyer? No, no, be careful. Don't turn everything into a law. But remember the heart. The heart is, if you're wanting to retaliate, leave that to God. That's not your job. And as we look at Paul's life, we see that there were times that God did have him defend himself and other times he didn't. One time we see him sneak out of the city in a basket and get away. Other time he was beaten, take, dragged out of the city and stoned and left for dead. We see one time in Acts chapter 16 that uh, even though he knew about the Roman citizen law, that a Roman citizen could not be beaten without a trial. In Acts chapter 16, he was beaten without a trial, thrown into the jail cell without a trial. But later on, the jailer and his family get saved through that whole process. Remember, God had something good in mind. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But a few chapters later in chapter 22, God allows him to pull his Roman citizen card out when he's about to be beaten by the Roman soldiers. And he says, hey, are you allowed to beat a Roman citizen? So there's going to be times when the Spirit of God is going to have you speak up and there's going to be times when the spirit of God is going to tell you be quiet I don't want you to take this message and turn it into another set of rules to live by no what I want you to hear is the heart of God and so when something bad is done to you you might have had a contractor cheat you car dealer not fulfill all he promised 
your first reaction should be to entrust yourself to God. And your first reaction should be, I'm not going to worry about whether or not they're paid back. You know, it's kind of sad. How many of us over the years have gone back and bust because the cashier shorted us a quarter? Told you we're going to go from preaching to meddling tonight. I'm going to challenge you to not defend yourself, but to entrust yourself to one who judges justly. I'm actually going to ask you to do something different. I'm going to ask you to be more worried about being generous than whether or not you got everything you think you are owed. Just this past weekend, I had the privilege of being uh, with a pastor that's a friend of mine over there in Clearwater. And, and uh, I've been through the, if you've never been through the Grace Walk study by Steve McVeigh, it's excellent. And I went through the workbook years ago and I introduced him to it and he's just been excited about it. And he said, bring your Grace Walk workbook. We're going to meet for dinner and we're going to talk about it. Well, we go to this Sonny's barbecue over there in, in uh, Palm, Harbor, Palm Harbor, Florida. And we go, we get there and we sit at one table for over two hours. We got our Bibles out, we got our notebooks. I also know the waitress is not too excited about this because I've been a waiter. I know you make your money by turning tables over and here are two guys and they've got Bibles and unfortunately Christians aren't known for tipping well. And now we're sitting there for two hours. And so early in the night, I called her over. Her name was Amy. I said, Amy, I know you make your money by turning the tables over. Oh, she says, it's okay. I said, I know you're saying it's okay, but inside you're not saying it's okay. I know how this works. But I said, I promise you by the end of the night, you'll be so glad that we sat here for this long. So we sit there and we do our study. And when the time was up, it was time to pay the bill. The restaurant's about to close. She brings the check and the pastor bought the dinner that night. And he gave a great tip. And God told me to pull a $20 bill out and put it on top of that. We tipped more than the bill was worth. By a lot. Because he gave a great tip on top. He didn't know I was going to do that. So he had already bombed her with a tip. And then I threw a 20 on top of it. She came back and she said, for real? I said, I told you you'd be glad that we came here tonight. She said, I am glad financially, but I'm even more glad because I got to sit and listen to you guys for two hours talk about the Bible. But when we're more worried about whether or not we're getting what we think we're owed we don't entrust ourselves to God. And actually, what does the Bible say? If someone forces you to walk a mile, do what? Go to. Actually, your attitude should be, I so trust God, you're trying to cheat me. I'm going to bless you in return. I'm going to bless you in return. Oh, by the way, isn't that what the passage said there in Matthew? To bless those who persecute you? Someone's your enemy? Do good to them? Go to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 1 through 5. Another reason why we shouldn't seek to retaliate, we don't judge justly. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Remember, the merciful will receive mercy. The measure you use will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We're not going to go there, but in the story in Matthew 18 that Jesus tells about this man that was forgiven this great debt, and then he goes and chokes his fellow servant. 
because he owed him less. Folks, ask God to let the heart of that law sink into your heart. He said eye for an eye, tooth for a truth, not because he wanted everything to be equal. He wanted them to keep from retaliating. And actually, the heart of the law was, this happened to you? It's okay, let it go. Am I in the place of God? Yeah, you might have meant it for evil, but I got a big God who's going to use it for good. Let's go back now and reread our passage again. Now that we understand the heart of the law, let's go see how much it reads differently now than when we read it the first time. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you, this is important, so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When we love our enemies, we're acting like God. Go to Romans chapter 5, and I'll show you what I mean. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, look at what it says. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, for one's will scarcely die for a righteous person. Somebody might rarely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more, that's one of those passages we're going to study on the cruise coming up in November, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Look at what it says. When we were enemies, when we were powerless, how did God treat us? Did he give us what we deserved? Did he retaliate? He actually demonstrated love. Let me say something to you. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you've got a neighbor you don't get along with, when you edge your lawn, edge theirs. Reach out to them in generosity. Their leaves falling on your side of the fence, don't say anything. Scoop them up and put them in the bin. Be nice to them. Treat them with love because that will demonstrate that you're God's child. I'm going to ask you a question now, though. This is where I want you to go. I want you to ask some things. Now. Oh, by the way, before I go any further, let me also tell you, I don't want you to do phony love. 
like I heard about years ago. By the way, does anybody ever remember the, the Car Talk guys? Ever listen to them on National Public Radio? Click and clack, the Car Talk guys? Years ago, uh, one of them since passed away, so they don't do the radio program live anymore. But years ago on that radio program, I was listening, and they were uh, dealing with this lady who had called in, and, and uh, her car, she kept taking it to the mechanic, and they never fixed it. It never fixed it. It kept getting the same results. And uh, she called in, and she said, what do I do? And he, they said, here's what you do. You bake them a delicious banana bread. And you bring your car to the shop with the banana bread. And you say to these guys, look, I know you've tried for years to fix my car and you haven't been able, and I just really appreciate all the time you've put in. Here, I baked you a banana bread to say thank you. And he said, let them each take a bite. And once they've taken the bite, say, and I'll give you the antidote as soon as you fix my car. No. <laughs> No, not that kind of phony love. Let your love be genuine, the scripture says. But I'll ask you a question now. How do we honestly treat our perceived enemies in the church or in our families today? How do we honestly treat them when we see someone as our enemy? What do we do? I've taken people to court, Pastor. You've taken people to court? Yep. Well. I understand, but I, see the fruit when they start saying back. I, I understand. We can talk more because what you just brought up is a bigger subject than what, what I have time for to get into. And you have to be in. in, in are you talking for your job where they they, they owe you because you own a company or rentals or whatever, right? We'll talk more about that afterwards. But what the heart of the law is is be willing to first say what's the reason why you're not paying? How can I help? What, there are times that we will do that kind of a thing because of the, we have to follow the government's laws. The Bible says in Romans 13, we have to follow the laws of the land. That's a different issue. But when you're doing it to retaliate, we're talking about retaliation tonight. So keep that in mind. Go ahead. How do we, how do we treat? I look at that person and list everything that I can that's bad about that person and apply it to my own life. <laughs> that's not a bad thing. All right. I asked you to be honest. Avoid them. I know you guys are afraid to say anything because then you're going to just, you'll be confessing at the same time. We ignore them. We slander them. They say something bad about us. You know, they might have called two, three, two, three people about me. I can call five or six about them. We hope bad things happen to them. And we're glad inwardly when it does. Let's be honest. That's where our hearts really are. Remember, Jesus is showing us this to show us our hearts. It shouldn't be this way, though. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us to a passage of Scripture we probably haven't looked at since the last wedding we were at. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. And let's take a look closely at 1 Corinthians 13. And actually, Duke, I do believe that's how you respond, too, because I know your heart. No, no, not the list I just did. What he said, I actually believe he's honest about that. Duke's very serious about his walk with the Lord, and I actually believe he does list all their stuff, and then examine it against himself, which is good. The Bible says to do that. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my, up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It doesn't do me any good. 
There's no reward for it. Love, though, is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. By the way, that doesn't sound like business meetings in churches, does it? It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, as for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they're going to cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Folks, what we have a tendency to do when we look at leadership in our church and pick people to be in leadership in our church, we look for impressive people that are powerful leaders or uh, strong leaders or people that are doing hard work and doing lots of stuff in the church. But the Bible says what we should be looking for is, does this person just exude love? I don't want anybody to be impressed with how good of a preacher I am if people don't think I love them. They don't feel like the love of Christ is coming through me. I don't care if they say, wow, I really like to listen to him, but boy, what a jerk when he's not in the pulpit. Oh, and by the way, how many preachers have we heard about that over the years in the same way? The Bible says that our heart should be that we receive the love of God and we just splash it on the people around us. And the only way you can do that is to keep your eyes Jesus. So what we're going to do tonight in the time we have left is we're going to take a look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be what? Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you haven't been with us and you don't remember what he just said earlier in chapter 5, verse 20, you won't realize what he's just done. You see, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he said this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's speaking to a bunch of Jews who understood in their mind that the Pharisees were way up here close to God. Because they were like, they would tithe on their mint and their cumin and they would do all this stuff. And they would always think in their mind, I'll never be as righteous as those guys. I mean, they have perfect hand-washing rituals, and they do all this stuff. They pray out in public, and they, they, they're just impressive. They are so close to God. I could never be like them. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, what's he trying to get them to do? Say, well, who then can go to heaven? Only the Pharisees? And then he tops it at the end of this section of his sermon, because we're about to move next time we come together in a couple weeks into the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. And he ends this section about the law by saying, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. To get them to say, I can't. Yes, to get them to say, I can't. And if you realize you can't, you realize you are spiritually poor. And how did this whole sermon start? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see what he's doing? How it's all tying together? 
Go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And it's not an accident, by the way, that this verse ties striving for peace with everyone with holiness, which no one will see the Lord. We've seen too many people over the years in the church that act like they're holy, but they judge everybody else that's less holy than them. The Bible says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord, without which no one will see the Lord. Do you know somebody that actually strove for this holiness, this perfection? Do you know anybody who that was? It's that young man named Saul. He became Paul. And if you go with me to Philippians chapter 3, the last passages we're going to look at tonight here in Philippians 3, you'll see how Paul himself sought to be perfect. He sought to be holy, but he tried to do it by keeping the law. Look at what he said in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. In other words, you think you can get to heaven by being good enough? I dare you to measure yourself up against how I tried to get to heaven by being good enough. I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like the law said. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee in keeping the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, he wasn't saying he never broke the law because Paul understood that if you don't, if you, if, you, if you keep the outward part of the law, but the heart of the law, you're breaking your guilties if you broke it all. And Paul understood that. But what he was saying here was this. There was no one that could accuse me of breaking the outward aspects of the law. As there came to righteousness by the law, according to man's eyes, blameless. Nobody could find anything that I did that was against the law. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. By the way, let me just stop real quick. This is the same Paul that said in 1 Corinthians 4 when they were questioning whether or not he was even really an apostle. He said, I don't care if I'm judged by you or even any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm leaving that to the Lord who in the last day will judge the secrets of men's hearts. Folks, you want to really get to the point where you're understanding this heart of no retaliation? You will get to the point where you're not even worried about whether or not someone likes you. By the way, that's one of the big things we preachers struggle with. We're forever out there preaching the word of God and then looking, I hope they're not getting mad. Hope they'll come back next week. But when we really entrust ourselves to God and we're faithful and we do what he asks us to do, we let the results be what they are, even if they're mad or disagree. Jesus himself, when he was preaching and said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Upon hearing this, many of his disciples went away. They said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And he turned to the 12 and he said, you guys are free to go too. He didn't say, hey guys, I'll soften it. I'll make it a little bit more palatable. I'll make my preaching more relevant so that you guys will stick around and we can draw a crowd. He entrusted himself to the Father. He let the truth be the truth. And he didn't worry about how it was perceived. But he didn't do it as a jerk. I don't care if you like it or not. 
No, he wanted them to come. But he also loved them enough to tell them the truth, and they left the rest to God. Oh, they called him demon-possessed. They called him a half-breed. They, they said that he actually cast out demons not by the power of God, but by Satan himself. And he loved them. And he loved them. And he loved them. Folks, it's time that the reality of who we are in Christ begins to manifest itself. I'm not saying we're not saved. I'm saying we don't know what it means to be full of the Spirit. Remember, Stephen? Full of the Spirit? The only way you get to be full of the Spirit is you spend time with Jesus. You already got all the God you're ever going to get. You don't need to have a special service or a baptism or another again or anything. You don't need a special preacher to lay hands on you. You already received all of God that you're ever going to get. You've received everything. Now the question is, is how much of you does he have? And how we do that is on a daily basis, we put our eyes back on the Father. We spend time in his word. We spend time in prayer. We take our eyes off of the things around us, and we realign ourselves with his truth. And his spirit is then allowed to take control. So Paul says, I had all that. I strove for all that. And I thought I was doing great. But then I realized it was worthless. And it wasn't going to get me to heaven. And there's the only way to get to heaven. This is what he says here. He said in verse uh, 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, he then was not satisfied with that either. And he continues on. He tried to gain perfection and holiness, and he found it through faith in Christ. But listen closely. Remember what we read in Hebrews 12, verse 14? What did it say? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, which means you have to put that word strive for in front of and the holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for what? Holiness. Paul knew he was made righteous by faith in Christ alone, but he wasn't satisfied. He goes on in verse 10 and says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any, in anything you think otherwise, I'll meet you in the back parking lot. He doesn't say that, does he? If you disagree with me, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. He didn't feel like he needed to win the argument. How many of us, when someone doesn't see it the way we see it, or they, they don't interpret the scripture that way, we want to prove that we know more scripture than them. And we get into a debate and we retaliate with, you got a verse? Well, I got a verse. You got a verse? Well, I got a verse. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 says, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must gently instruct in the hopes that God will bring them the understanding. Folks, let me just tell you. The Bible says that we need to be sons and daughters of God like we are, but let that be demonstrated. How did he demonstrate? He loved his enemies. 
He loved those that are out to get him. I'm going to ask you a question tonight as we close. Have you been perfect in everything we looked at? Or have there been times that you've probably retaliated or wanted to retaliate? Or all that? Of course we have. But did you hear what Paul said? Um, because this is the same Paul that in Acts 15 didn't like the fact that John Mark separated from him and chickened out and he got mad and he didn't show a whole lot of mercy to John Mark, did he? He got into such a fight, he got in a fight with Barnabas to the point that he and Barnabas weren't even speaking to each other. By the way, if you can get Barnabas mad at you, you're a pretty good fighter. Paul wasn't perfect. Oh, but remember, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. The one who begins the good work in us will finish it. If you've messed up, and I've messed up, we've all messed up. We forget what is behind. And we strive toward what's ahead. And all who are mature will think this way. At least, let's at least live up to what we've already attained. And so my encouragement to you is this. As we move into the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, which I can't wait to get into, as he starts moving away from pointing out all of our guilt to now pointing us to how to get closer and how to receive more of the power of God, which will be a lot more fun, really, isn't it? You know? It's only so much fun to go to the doctor and have him point out all the things that are wrong with you. But there's a loving purpose when God's done that. Now it's, we're going to move into how to get closer and receive his power. We're going to talk about that when we come back in two weeks. But my encouragement to you is this. Go let the love of Christ that's been flowed at you constantly actually take root in your heart to the point that you just splash it on the people around you. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.